love. For love is the essential ingredient. Sorry, I forgot to hit play, so now I'm recording. The essential ingredient is love. And last week we said exercising spiritual gifts without love is like making a blueberry pie without blueberries. You, have a, you may have the best of everything, but without the blueberries, you don't have a blueberry pie. You can be the best of every spiritual gift, but if you don't use them with love, you're not using them in a way that honors God, no matter how good the others are. And so last week we saw that, and then we looked at the first of 11, verse 11 out of 15 descriptions or ways to describe love. And we left off at verse 7. We'll pick up there. Sarah, would, well, you're in the middle. We'll start on the right. Jerry, would you read, and you get a simple one, just verse 7. And then Katie, would you read 8 through 13? I'm sorry. I was... I'm sorry. We're in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. Sorry, not clear. 1 Corinthians 13. Jerry, if you could read just verse 7. Katie, if you could read 8 through 13. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. All right, so now we come across these four all statements. Bears, believes, hopes, endures. So what does it mean that love bears all things? Well, the heart of this has to do with responding to the sins and shames of those that we love. Paul Tripp writes, Bitterness against people is actually confessing their sins to myself. Anger is akin to confessing their sin to God. Gossip is confessing their sin to someone else. And in love... We bear their sins. We don't bear them, if you can understand the nuance of those two words. Unlove bears someone's sins to everyone else. They love to tell everyone what you did, where you sit there going, why are they telling this? This is so embarrassing. Love bears or covers the sin. And yet we all know that we love to hear other people's sins unbared. You know, we love exposés that tell all. People love celebrity magazines or those shows that are basically filled with gossip. We love to hear of their lives being exposed. And yet love bears that. It covers it up. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love puts a covering over it. You don't let everyone else know about it. You take care of it between you, and then it's secret. Now, people sometimes get themselves in trouble because they don't take the immediate context into consideration, or they get so narrowly focused that they don't notice the larger context. So when Paul says love bears all things, that doesn't mean he doesn't notice and talk about sins publicly. I'm just going to walk through some things he's done in his letter. 
In chapter 1 of this same letter, Paul condemned them for divisions in the church. In chapter 5, he rebuked them for allowing sexual sin that even pagans would not allow in not practicing church discipline. He rebuked them for that. Chapter 6, he warned them of the danger of not fleeing sin and said unrepentant sin, and he listed off many areas, shows that you're not even a true believer. In chapter 7, he challenged them of their wrong views about marriage. In chapter 8 through 10, he rebuked them for using their knowledge to be unloving. And he urged them, use their freedoms to serve and love one another. In chapter 11, he admonished the rich for getting to the Lord's Supper first and going ahead and eating. And then some of them even getting drunk before the poor people could come in. All this to say, bearing all things does not mean tolerating all things or never bringing anything up you know the degree of the rebuke and the apology should be related to the degree of it being known you know if i'm meeting with keith Keith one-on-one and i say something harsh well he talks to me about it one-on-one and lord willing i confess it one-on-one but if he says something this morning and i lay into him well he may talk to me one-on-one but then i need to confess to everyone because that was before everyone So we could go to two extremes. We love to bear everyone's life to everyone, and we're called to cover that. But we can go to the other extreme and go, well, you know, Christians forgive. You should never bring anything public. Well, if it's a public sin, it needs to be dealt with publicly. Let's not confuse the context of what he's talking about here. As well, he's not saying love tolerates abuse. You know, the loving, most loving thing you can do for an abuser is get them to stop. Abuse is sin. To allow someone to continue to sin is not a loving thing. And so at times, and there's always challenges about when is the best time, but there are times when you even need to get authorities involved out of love for that person. You don't just say, well, I got to bear this. I got to. Well, no, they're going to be helped when they're stopped from sinning and people can help them to realize what you're doing is unloving to this person and unloving to God. Let's go to the next one and then we'll have some discussion. Love believes all things. Now let's we'll flip. Now we'll talk about what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean love is gullible. Doesn't mean love is naive. Love does not suspend rational thought or accept anything someone says. Well, they love me. I love them. I guess you know they they said they didn't eat the cookie. They're my kid. I love them. Who cares? They got crumbs on their face and chocolate on their hands. Love believes all things. Well, no, that's not what it's saying. Rather, it means that in a relationship of love, where both people are loving each other, it's not marked by cynicism or skepticism. In a loving relationship, I don't always go, so what'd you buy on the credit card today? Really? Is that all? Do I need to go pull it up online and see how much you spent? No, love is not marked by skepticism of what they're doing or cynicism. Love in when love is working correctly, has trust. And again, that doesn't mean you never challenge them. It never means that you never go, eh, honey, I don't know, that just seems a little off based on everything that's going on. It's saying on the normal level. I mean, we see the opposite of this with Job and his friends. Because what did Job and his friends not do? They don't believe him. (laughs) He's saying, I didn't do anything. I think I'm righteous. No, Job, there has to be something. We know that we, we don't trust you. We don't believe you. We know you've done something wrong. And yet love 
believes all things. So let's pause and consider these two. How do we bear one another in love? And why, this is kind of a different question, so you can answer either one. Why is belief in the other one so essential for relationships, or at least good relationships? If you're telling someone the truth and they say, you're lying to me, you kind of ended the conversation right there because it's like, why should I even go any further? Why should I defend myself? You know, I'm, I'm speaking the truth, you're telling me it's a lie. It's kind of the end of the discussion at that point. Yeah. Like I'm trying to sow trust in the, into the relationship when you're believing all things. You're trying to model that for the other person. Yeah. Side comment forever ingrained on this video or audio recording. If you need to put the cake in the refrigerator, we can pull the flowers out. <laughs> you just have to grab the whole thing because there's an insert inside it. So you can just put it on that round table there. Love the cake. Yes. Uh, for those of you all who are visiting, we're going to have a wedding as part of our service this morning. It's not what we normally do, but nonetheless, we're Baptists. You can expect weird things. Uh, no snakes. Uh, <laughs> so, you were saying, Joseph, sorry, I got distracted by the wedding cake. Uh, for beliefs, all things, like what are we believing, why are we doing that? For me, it, it seems like when you believe all things, you're trying to sow trust into the relationship, even if it's not being reciprocated, it's, it's you're, you're, you're modeling that. Okay, yeah. And I think for bears, all things... If you don't, or if this is not common in your relationship, then there's division, and the division just continues to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, That's definitely. Scorekeeping in the relationship. Um, you're, you're dealing with judgment rather than love for the person. Yeah. And we've, real quick, we've probably all seen people, you're out together, and their spouse shares something embarrassing about them in front of the whole group, and you're just like, awkward. Like, why did you do that? That's, like, so damaging, and I don't know what to say. Ha, 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 that's funny, not really. Like, bear that. Let that, take care of that between you. You don't need to, like, tell everyone about that. Joseph, you're going to say something. Does the church discipline of 1 Corinthians 5 mean that there's limits for how much Paul's willing to bear? Yeah, I was trying to say that, that bears all thing doesn't mean, well, yeah, we just, we just bear it. no. He's, I think he's talking about levels of sin. And again, we could go back to the illustration I gave with Keith. Keith, if I am rude to Keith really sinfully and he talks to me, I go, whatever. And like even worse, well, then he might pull in David and go, David, I don't know what's going on. Jeremy, we need to go talk to him. And then they both come and I blow up at them. Well, then it has to become unbared because I'm not allowing it to be bared. I, I'm forcing the issue to come to the light. But we always want to keep it as low level as we can. That's why Matthew 18 starts one another. Then it's not then the church, or then it's like one or two others. Then, everyone, Keith, you're going to add some. Well, I, was, I think about this in the aftermath. If there is sin, sin needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be confronted. Okay, now after the sin has been confronted, I don't continue to stew on this. I don't continue to go, do you remember what you did to me yesterday? You know, yeah, I forgave you, but... Bringing that up, and so you bear that. It's a, it's a, it is a, and it is something you bear, and it's hard if 
you've been sinned against and yeah. betrayed or insulted. Um, but you do. You do. And well, Jesus you... went through that, and he forgave, and he doesn't remember it. So we have to do the same way, not remember it. The scars, the scars aren't going to go away. Yeah, doing our best. Yeah, man, well, I don't think uh, forgiveness means amnesia. We may remember, but when it comes to our mind, we actively try to put it down. We actively try and say, Lord, help me not to remember that against them. Help me to love them in spite of what they did to me. And contain- I mean, forgiveness, especially the heart of the offense, is normally not a one-time thing. It begins one time, but then we over and over, when our mind wants to replay that tape, we go, Father, help me to forgive them, as you said, as you forgave me. So, uh, love hopes all things. That is the third one, this all is. Over and over in Scripture, we see examples of people holding out hope that change will occur. You know, God speaks to Israel over and over through the prophets, time and again, urging them, will you return? You know, Jesus... When Peter denied him, he didn't go, I'm done with Peter. He hoped that by coming and talking to Peter, by admonishing him, Peter would return. What was the father of the prodigal son doing? Most likely, he was looking out. He was hoping that the son would return. So when he saw the son, not when the son got to the doorstep, he was running to the son. Love is hoping for this one. Now, let's think about this letter of, to the Corinthians. Imagine there is a church today that had everything going on that this church had going on with it. I would be tempted to, are they even Christians? Is this even a church? I mean, all of these things going on, and yet Paul holds out hope. Even though you care more about your party in the church than about Christ, even though you don't care about sin, even though the rich are abusing the poor, even though you're trampling over each other's rights in the name of knowledge. What does he call them in the first chapter? Saints. And he writes a letter to them with the hope that, hey, God's going to work through this letter and he's going to make you more like Christ. And so love hopes. And I, you know, I know many of you in this room who have relationships where it's tempting to give up hope. We've talked to that person so many times. We've had this conversation over and over. It's pointless. It's hopeless. And yet love until death is holding out that hope that God in his mercy will reach down and that person will come back. We hold out that hope in love. Tom Schreiner writes, Paul means that love continues to hope and believe that God may intervene in the lives of others. For God is able to turn things around. We believe in a God who brings life out of death. And a God who raised Christ from the dead. Those of us who believe in God should be the most optimistic people in the world. No matter how bad things get, we will finally triumph. And so as believers, we have hope. Again, not naivety, not foolishness that we just get run over, but hope that God will work. Number four, love endures all things. And I want to begin here by talking a little bit about words, because words mean something based in their context. If we were in 1721, that's the year 1721, and I said, will you burn this song for me, what do I probably mean? Set it on fire. If you live in 2021 and you say, will you burn the song for me, what do you mean? CD. 
you, will you make more of this song? So the same word, same sentence, but in a different context actually means the exact opposite thing. So we have to always look at, not just what the words say, but what is it meaning in that context? And this is important as we study the Bible. Sometimes people will do concordance searches, and I'm not saying those are bad. But we always have to remember, just because a word is used multiple times in the Bible doesn't mean we can go, well, look, it's used here, here, so it has to mean this here. Well, it might. It very well could. Words often get used the same way. But we have to look at each context. As we go through, we're going to see how that's important. But to help us understood, understand the word endure, I thought it would be helpful. I tried to be cautious to make sure the context matched. Look up some various verses. I believe we start over here. Elaine, could you turn to 2 Timothy 2.10? Arnaldo, could you turn to Hebrews chapter 12? I'll have you read verses 2 through 3 and then later verse 7. And Katrina, 1 Peter 2.20. All of these have words encouraging endurance. Elaine, if you could read for us 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So here, Paul, probably should have had you read verse 9, but verse 9 talks about how he's in chains for the gospel. He's talking about, I'm in chains for the gospel, but I endure all for the elect, for the people of God. So what is he saying? He's saying, love causes me to go through hardships because I care about you. I want what's better for you than what is for me. Hebrews chapter 12. Why don't you just start in verse 1, Arnold, and go through verse 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, many, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of our founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right, so here... We're called to endurance, and it says, how are you going to endure? By focusing on the fact that Jesus himself, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Again, endurance is in the idea of a relationship and being willing to suffer for the good of the other. The author of Hebrews continues, though, because of this, we should endure. In fact, we should endure even when God disciplines us. In the same chapter, Arnold, verse 7, please. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? So this is kind of the opposite. Rather than us enduring suffering for them, we are enduring their own suffering that they put on us because they think they're trying to help us. You know, maybe they're rebuking us. Now, does that mean they're always right? No. But it does mean the first time you're friend, your spouse, whatever, talks to you, you don't have fist up, all right, you, oh, you want to talk about my sins? I, we can talk about sins. I got some things I can bring up. No, love endures. Listen to what they have to say. There might be a grain of truth. Take the log out of your own eye first. Listen to what they have to say. Love endures in that way. First Peter 2, 20. For what reason do you 
credit, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. As we said earlier, there's a line or level of abuse in which love does not endure but gets authorities. Yet, we can become so thin-skinned that we allow anything. Oh, got to stand up for rights. Got to, got to make sure everything's done correctly. No one's going to treat, this, treat me this way. And yet, if that's the way we always acted, there probably wouldn't be many children in homes after about age two. You know, there's a lot of endurance that parents put up with as, you don't love me, you hate me, you don't care about me. And the parent in love shouldn't yell back, yes, I do. (laughs) You endure it. You know, they're two years old. They don't understand that I'm not giving them a cookie at 10 o'clock when they should have been in bed earlier because they're going to be up another two hours and then they're going to be cranky the next day. Love endures that. And we could bring that up to higher levels. Again, though, there's wisdom here. And really... Some people have noted, as we're getting here to the end of the 15 descriptions of love, that all of these are pictures of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, go back to verse 4. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. And you could go through the whole list. And yet, in that, as we noted earlier, we also have to notice immediate and wider context, because we could add Mark eleven fifteen through 18. Jesus clears money changers out of temples. Or Matthew 15, 7, Jesus, in love, calls religious hypocrites for what they are. So love is not this, oh, everything's wonderful. I just overlook everything. No, love sometimes is firm. Sometimes love calls out sin publicly. Sometimes love even does so where others will hear it. So, How do we maintain hope when the situation looks hopeless? Close your eyes and give it into the hands of the Lord. Great answer, Arnold. Any other thoughts? So, like you were talking before, we have to take those thoughts captive and then replace them with truth because we're believing. If we're hopeless, then we're believing, we're believing a lie and not the truth. Yes. Sorry, I got slightly distracted. <laughs> Other comments? It is only by abiding in Christ that we can do anything. Myself, I can't do these things. And as God has lavished His love and His power upon me, you know, as I abide in the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, He empowers me to do things I cannot do. Only. Yeah. I think also another great thing is to remind ourselves of all the times in Scripture that looked utterly hopeless, and yet God worked through them. One of my favorites is in Judges, when Gideon is called to take the army, and God tells him, and I'm sure no army commander has ever felt this, your troops are too large. 
You need to whittle them down. And then he whittles them down by, I think, 21,000 to 1,000 or something. It was some insane number. And he goes, actually, they're still too large. And you have to be thinking that Gideon is going, you don't understand military <laughs> combat because they have 100,000. I wasn't thinking the odds were that good when I had 21,000. And then he gets down to 300. And they have a rout of the enemy. I mean, they couldn't have looked any more hopeless. And story after story like that in Scripture where God works through hopeless situations and reminding ourselves of how God works. So does all of this mean we run the risk of being naive? We've mentioned that a few times. Because we're believing all things, we're hoping all things, we're enduring all things. Yes. Yeah. I, would think, I think God would rather have us that way and suffer abuse for it than to be cynical and jaded and hard and unloving. Yeah. yeah. I think that while it also can lead us to be naive, a lot more leads us to be perceived as being naive. Huh? And so part of that is Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting discussion. Do these verses show that love is actions, emotions, or both? I mean, you've been around Keith and I long enough. You know what we're going to say. <laughs> it's both. Yeah, because love is not jealous. Jealous is kind of an emotion. Uh, love is not easily provoked. That's emotion, yet it's not just emotions. Some of these are very clear actions. So I think people can sometimes get a little too caught up on trying to say this. Love is, for, is actions. Well, yes, it is. It's not just feelings. Well, love is just feeling. Well, no, it's also actions. I'm going to read one quote, and then we'll move on to the last section. It's by D.A. Carson. And he asks the question, well, why do we love? And he refers, God, refers to God's love. And he says, what is distinctive about God's love for us is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what is unlovely. As John 3.16 tells us, God loves the world because of what he is. And derivatively... That is how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with love that is like God's, self-originating. But it is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transformed the believer that his or her responses of love emerge out of the matrix of Christian character and are correspondingly less dependent on the loveliness of the object. In other words, he's saying to love someone, we don't have to find them lovely. God loved us even while we were still sinners. And we should have that same type of love. We're running a little short on time, so I'm just going to point out the next section. Uh, in logic, sometimes people talk about necessary but not sufficient criterion. And that is, a necessary criterion to be a human, is you have, a living human, is you have to have a beating heart. But that's not sufficient. If you say, I found a being that has a beating heart, you can't say, well, that's a human. It 
could be a dog or a giraffe or an elephant. So Paul has here over and over said, you need love. If you don't have love, you're nothing. And yet that's not the only condition needed to be a Christian. Last week we looked in 1 John, in the verses on the back there, of all these verses that say, look, if you don't love your brother whom you can see, then you actually don't love God whom you can't see. Except John and neither Paul here are saying, well, that's all you need. As long as you love, you know, we can sing, all you need is love. That's not true. Because 1 John and even Paul here in this letter show that actually you should be pursuing righteousness. I put some verses on there you can look up. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, chapter 3, 4 through 10, that are very clear. The one who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, 1 John is not saying the one who is not perfect. No one will be perfect before heaven. Yet he is the one who just says, eh, I don't care. God forgives. Well, they are showing a heart at least that at that moment is not acting like a Christian. As well, there is an accurate faith. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 and 5, 1 say very clearly, if you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, you are not of God. There are certain things you have to believe to be a Christian. But that's a little bit of a side conversation, so we will just mention that, that the necessary and sufficient criterion are three things. Love for God and others. Leading, trying to lead a righteous life and believing the right truths. All of those are essential for being Someone who honors God. But we're going to end by looking at these last verses. The permanence of love. Verse 8 says, Love never ends. Or you might have heard, or your version might say, Love never fails. In contrast to that, prophecy will be done away. Tongues will cease. Even knowledge will pass away. And the whole point of this section is that the manifestations of the Spirit that we've been looking at since chapter 12 some of them, such as prophecy and tongues, are wonderful blessings. They're great things. But we won't need them once the perfect, and we'll see what that means in a minute, comes. Now, we've got to be clear. Paul is not denigrating these at all. He's not saying manifestations of the Spirit are bad, prophecy is bad, tongues are bad. No, he's saying something better is coming. Karl Barth has famously stated, because the sun rises, all the lights are extinguished. Sun comes up, middle of the day, you don't need all the lights on in your house. Is that because the lights are bad? Well, no. You have the best light. When the perfect comes, we don't need all these extra things. We'll have the perfect. And so it will go away. Now, in this, we need to be clear. Due to some translations saying love never fails, we should not think that means love always wins. Love does not always succeed. You can be loving to someone, and the relationship ends. Jesus was loving to many people, and some of them put him to death on the cross. The point is not that love always succeeds, but rather it's that for you to always be successful, you must always love. Now when he says knowledge will pass away, he's referring to what he talked about in chapter 12, verse 8, the gift of knowledge. He's not saying our future involves a mindless existence. Well, when the perfect comes, we won't even know anything. Uh, that's not his point. He's saying we won't need these gifts of knowledge to understand. As well, the content of prophecies is not going to go away. It's not like when we're at this perfect time, all of everything in Scripture will go away. I think we'll still even know what the Scriptures are in heaven. They're not going to disappear. It's that we won't need new prophecies. 
Yet love will never go away. For all eternity, we will be loved and love doing to being with Jesus. And Paul says, that Paul expands, and in this case, we currently know in part and we prophesy in part. But he says that when the perfect comes, it will go away. So what is the perfect? Well, you've got to keep holding on because I'm not going to tell you yet. So what is this wonderful knowledge? Well, let's look at a few verses. Uh, Christina, would you turn to Romans 11, 33 through 36? Sarah, would you turn to 2 Peter 1, 3? Josh, would you mind turning to Deuteronomy 29, 29? Uh, I thought that's some other verses there. Maybe not. Uh, I'm going to give out some other verses. David Everett, would you turn to 2 Peter 1 3? Oh, it is on there. Never mind. I can read my sheet. All right. So, would you read Romans 11 33 through 36? Okay. okay. On the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscriptable. I guess that's it. Right? Yep, that's right. <laughs> Hooked on phonics. His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul is saying there, look, the knowledge of God is so great. Who can understand it? And he's saying now we only know in part. Sarah, would you read Second Peter 1.3? Because he's not saying we don't know enough. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So though we don't know everything now, he's not saying you don't know enough. Yes, we don't know God exhaustively, but we do know Him. We do truly know who He is. Now, some things we just don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are some ideas, some truths that are secret. They belong only to God, and they don't belong to us. We don't know them. And yet Paul goes on, yet when the perfect comes... The part is going to go away. Thus, again, some of these manifestations of the Spirit will not go on forever. And that will be when the perfect comes. So what does the perfect mean? Well, historically, there's kind of been three major views. You always put the one you believe last so you can set up the others. Knock them down. Not really. I'm not going to try and be cruel to them. But the first common view is maturity. When we're mature, then the perfect is here. And yet, as you read scripture, it's pretty clear we're going to struggle with sin till we're with the Lord. There's really, I don't think, any evidence that the church is more mature now than it was in the New Testament. And that's even with taking off the rose-colored glasses of the pristine New Testament church. Um, the New Testament church wasn't perfect, and neither are we. We're, so I don't think Paul was talking about when the church or individuals are mature. Another common idea is, well, the perfect is the closing of the canon. When the New Testament was finished, that was the perfect. And so now we're done with all of these other ideas. Well, that could be possible. 
I don't think that's what he's saying. You know, some people will say, well, look, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Well, that goes back to our discussion earlier, context. Yes, I'm not denying the law of the Lord is perfect, but that's not, I don't think Paul's drawing a connection here. And though scripture, even the closed canon is wonderful, I don't think anyone would say, as Paul goes on to say when the perfect is here, by reading my scripture, I feel like I see God face to face. Well, no. We read scripture and we say, yeah, we still know in part. So the perfect hasn't come. Well, what is the perfect? I think it's talking about when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, the perfect will be here and the partial will be done away. So does that mean that I think tongues and prophecy are still here today? Well, you have to keep coming back to Sunday school to find out. But here he gives some examples of the showing that it's not perfect. The first one is he uses the idea of the immaturity of a child. When I was a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child, now I became a man, I put away childish things. That's going to be the perfect when we put away the things that now when we look back, we're going to go, wow, we were so childish when we were on earth. Um, what are some things that child children do and when we become adults, we just kind of, pff, can't believe we thought that, did that? Okay. Put a blanket over my head and say you can't see. <laughs> I counted. Put a blanket over and now the monsters can't get me. Yeah. All these things that, yeah, we, we all laugh. It's silly. And yet Paul's saying, when the perfect, again, I think when Jesus comes, we'll look back, we'll say it was bad, but wow, what we know now is so perfect, makes the other look childish. Not only that, it's like what, our, what we have now is like seeing through a mirror dimly. Rather, but then we'll see face to face. To use another image, it would be like looking at a picture and then one day we'll see face to face. Having a picture is a wonderful thing when someone's not with you, but once they're with you, they're going to say to you if you're still clinging onto the picture, put the picture down, I'm here. I love your picture. What do you I'm here. Like, that's done. Why do you want the pictures? Let's be together. And when Jesus returns, the perfect comes, the pictures, the seeing dimly will be put away. Uh, there are four verses I put on there. Again, we have to be careful. We can't just take a word, lift it out of context, put another. But four times in the Old Testament, you can see the verses there face to face, is talking about when someone saw the angel of the Lord or Saul the Lord himself. I think the context of their culture would then say face-to-face at least leans toward face-to-face being when we see the Lord himself. I'll read 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When do we become like we should be? When he returns and we see him. That's what we are made for. And so here he's given them this idea that look, we have this great we have these great gifts from the Spirit now. They're wonderful, but something better is gonna come. So why is he saying this? Well he's telling this to the Corinthians because they think we've reached it. We can speak in tongues. We can prophesy. We have these manifestations of the Spirit. We've reached the top. And Paul's like, 
You're still doing what children do. You, you haven't reached the top. The top is when we're with the Lord. That's going to be the top. So don't think you're the zenith of spirituality because you can have some manifestation of the Spirit. And thus he ends, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, Paul's point is not to denigrate those. He's not saying faith or bad, hope or bad. And I don't think, you may disagree, I don't think he's even saying faith and hope will go away. Some people take that idea. But he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. I think he's saying they're going to remain. Well, how's hope going to remain? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul's talking about the resurrection. And he says, if we have hoped in this life only, which I think is implying, well, there's going to be a hope in the afterlife. And even when we're in glory, I think we'll realize I'm here not because of what I did, but because my faith in Jesus. And that's why I continue to stay here. And so faith, hope, and love exist, but the greatest of these is love. For all eternity, we will be in a perfect relationship with God and with others of love. Any comments or questions as we wrap up? Yes. I'm not speaking on whether tongues still exist today. No. Yeah. It seems as though you are speaking specifically about these things happening once Jesus returns. Whereas I had always thought that it was talking about once I've died and I'm with the Lord and I have a new body. Am I drawing a distinction that you are not making? or? Well, that would just be a different question. What happens to those who die before he returns? And I'd say, as Paul says, um, when we die, we're absent from the body, but present with the Lord, thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But for those who are still alive, all of that will be returned, and it will, things will be completely changed when Jesus returns and resurrects everyone, body and soul. So you are not saying that I will not have Yeah, nobody will reach perfection until Jesus returns. So or, well, because even then, when we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord, but when Jesus returns, he reunites body and soul. We're missing bodies for a while. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because when Elijah and Moses appear, they appear. And so, and Samuel appears. So there's a manifestation of something. It's not like you're just into the ether. There's some context of existence. Like Obi-Wan with, Kenobi. With the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you can see him. But, he, but, but, but we will be embodied, as he says, at the second time. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, but we're not going to forget it. All right, any other comments or questions? All right, well, we will wrap up for today. Uh,